The greatest enemy of faith may be forgetfulness. That is the way Dale Ralph Davis, who is a superb evangelical commentator of the Old Testament historical books, describes what is going on in Joshua chapters 3 and 4. Faith is nurtured and sustained by the frequent remembrance of God's faithfulness. His continual mercies to his people, both large and small, and of his great works of redemption on which our hope is founded. We see this emphasis upon remembrance in the institution of the annual Passover feast of Old Testament Israel. Back in Exodus chapter 13, Moses told The people of Israel, you shall tell your son on that day, the day of Passover, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute as at its appointed time from year to year. The Passover feast was designed to promote, to provoke rather, the remembrance of the Lord's great old covenant act of redemption in releasing his people from the bondage of Egypt, as well as to nurture their faith going forward that God would surely keep his covenant with Israel. It's no coincidence then that in Israel's history, whenever the Passover feast was neglected, faithlessness resulted. Likewise, we see the same emphasis upon remembrance in the institution of the Lord's Supper. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So the Lord's Supper is designed to provoke the remembrance of the Lord's great new covenant act of redemption in releasing his people from the bondage of sin, death, and hell through the atoning death of Christ upon the cross, as well as to nurture our faith going forward that God will surely keep his covenant promise to save and to sustain his church until he comes again to take her home to be with him forever. And like the Passover, it is no coincidence that a church or an individual Christian that neglects the regular celebration of the Lord's Supper descends then into faithlessness. Because forgetfulness is the enemy of faithfulness. Therefore, we must instill into this church, we need to instill into our families, we need to instill into our own hearts and our own lives, the vital importance of remembrance of God's mercies, particularly in regard to the Lord's Supper. Davis writes again, the pattern of remembering carries over for the church. We continue to remember the utterly unique act of our Redeemer in the Lord's Supper. 
Even our children whisper to us as we take the elements. What does that mean? What is that? What are you doing? And even there we can whisper our brief witness back to them. Why this remembrance? Lest we begin to regard the cross as a piece of furniture rather than the throne of the shepherd who soaked up the wrath of God for the sins of his flock. But I would say we, we mustn't only remember the great once for all acts of redemption. We must also remember the personal mercies that we have received. The, the answered prayers. The thousand ways we have witnessed the Lord's faithfulness and his kindness towards us. Such manifold mundane mercies ought to be rehearsed in connect groups week by week. At, at dinner tables night by night. This is the stated purpose of the Thanksgiving holiday that we just celebrated. From its first inception in 1621, a Thanksgiving feast was seen as an opportunity to rehearse the Lord's mercies and to remember his faithfulness to his people. The Mayflower arrived, here's a little bit of history for you. The Mayflower arrived in Massachusetts Bay, well north of their intended destination, in November of 1620 after an absolutely miserable two months at sea, bearing 102 passengers plus crew. They spent the disastrous winter of 1620 to 1621 aboard ship, during which 45 of those 102 passengers died of malnutrition, of disease, of exposure. But the following spring and summer saw the Lord's face to shine upon them. With no small degree of help from the Wampanoag Indians who taught them to hunt and gather shellfish and to grow corn and beans and squash, these pilgrim colonists celebrated their first successful harvest that fall in 1621 with a three-day festival during which they were outnumbered two to one by their Native American guests. After describing the feast... Edward Winslow wrote in his diary, And although it be not always so plentiful as it was at this time with us, yet by the goodness of God we are so far from want that we often wish you to be partakers of our plenty. In President Washington's Thanksgiving proclamation of 1789, he wrote this, Now, therefore, I do recommend and assign Thursday, the 26th day of November next, to be devoted by the people of these states to the service of that great and glorious being who is the beneficent author of all good that was, that is, or that will be. That we may then all unite in rendering unto him our sincere and humble thanks for his kind care and protection of the people of this country previous to their becoming a nation. For the signal and manifold mercies and the favorable interpositions of his providence which we experienced in the course and conclusion of the late war. For the great degree of tranquility, union, and plenty which we have since enjoyed. For the peaceable and rational manner in which we have been enabled to establish constitutions of government for our safety and happiness. And particularly the national one now lately instituted. For the civil and religious liberty with which we are blessed and the means we have of acquiring and diffusing useful knowledge. And in general for all the great and various favors which he hath been pleased to confer upon us. It was actually Abraham Lincoln who established Thanksgiving as a national holiday in 1863. Not coincidentally at the height of the Civil War. 
In his proclamation, after recounting the Lord's many blessings in spite of what he called the waste of life resulting from the war, Lincoln wrote, They are the gracious gifts of the Most High God, who, while dealing with us in anger for our sins, has nevertheless remembered mercy. It has seemed fit to me and right and proper that they should be solemnly, reverently, and gratefully acknowledged as with one heart and one voice by the whole American people. I do therefore invite my fellow citizens in every part of the United States and also those who are at sea and those who are sojourning in foreign lands to set apart and observe the last Thursday of November next as a day of thanksgiving and praise to our beneficent Father who dwelleth in the heavens. I hope that this Thursday, this last Thanksgiving holiday, served this purpose in your own home and, and amidst your own family. I hope that it was a time of remembering and rehearsing the Lord's mercies to you throughout the last year and of giving thanks to him from whom all blessings flow. That was the reason why it was instituted at these various stages in our nation's history. If you want to be faithful, you cannot be forgetful. If you wish to be strong and courageous as you persevere in striving for the kingdom and making war upon indwelling sin, if you wish not to be overcome by fear and anxiety and unbelief in the midst of trials and tribulations, you must learn the discipline, and it is a discipline, you must learn the discipline of rehearsing and remembering the Lord's mercies, both large and small. That, I think, is the point of Joshua 3 and 4. Now, obviously, this is a pretty long narrative to preach in one sermon, but we've got all day. Just... I'm just kidding. I'm not going to dwell on every single verse. Rather, what I'm going to do is read the text and I'm going to stop. You can kind of follow along in your bulletin. I'm going to stop and make some comments here and there. And then we'll focus the remainder of our time on the last six verses. Really just highlighting those verses that we read at the beginning of the service. Chapter 4, verses 19 to 24. Where Joshua explains for Israel the significance of the majestic event that they have just experienced and the importance of remembering it throughout their generations. So Joshua chapter 3 finds Israel encamped on the eastern border of the promised land, poised to enter in and to claim their inheritance. But between Israel and the land that God promised to Abraham and to his descendants lies a river. The Jordan River posed an insurmountable obstacle to the people of Israel, so insurmountable, in fact, that the armies of Canaan apparently did not bother defending their eastern border. Troops simply couldn't cross it. Why the Lord did not bring his people into Canaan from the south is a mystery. That's what he had done 40 years earlier at Kadesh Barnea. But you will remember that Israel trembled in fear and unbelief before the peoples of Canaan at that time. And God had condemned Israel to wander in the desert for a generation. This time, in God's inscrutable wisdom, he determined that he was going to bring them into Canaan another way. A way that was even more impregnable than the fortified south. Why, we might ask. 
Why, why, why is God doing this thing that seems logistically a really bad idea? Well, it's because God loves to do the impossible. He loves to save his people, to redeem his people in a way that the only explanation for it is the Lord has done this. And that's what he's doing here. The Jordan River was an impregnable barrier. It was 90 to 100 feet across at Jordan, or at Jericho rather, with a depth ranging from 3 feet to 12 feet. It had a very strong current, still does, due to the drop in elevation from its source in the mountains of Lebanon to the north. Near the Sea of Galilee, the Jordan drops some 40 feet per mile, and it has an overall average decrease of 9 feet per mile. Furthermore, the text is careful to note in verse 15 that the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest. This is the early summer harvest. In other words, Israel was not just dealing with the Jordan River. They're dealing with the Jordan River at flood stage, which could swell the river from 200 yards to over one mile in width. To make matters even worse, the entire Jordan floodplain is covered in very thick brush. Under normal circumstances, a handful of men, just like the two spies that Joshua sent into Jericho, could cross the fords. But not women and children and belongings and equipment and livestock and priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant. And certainly not at flood stage. This is either the worst idea in the history of military logistics, or the Lord is setting the stage for an outbreaking of his omnipotent power. Look at verse 1. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shittim. And they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, As soon as you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it, in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priests, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people." Let me offer a few remarks on this paragraph. First, I want you to notice that there is a, there's a demonstrable emphasis upon the Ark of the Covenant in this paragraph. It's mentioned, in fact, 17 times in the whole of Joshua 3 and 4. And that would seem significant. It would seem like it's something the author wants us to notice. The Ark of the Covenant was the visible symbol of God's presence in the midst of his people. Indeed, it was God's throne where he sat enthroned above the cherubim to judge and to forgive. It usually resided within the tabernacle in the inner sanctum, the Holy of Holies. But whenever it was transported, it was carried on special poles by the Levites. And I think that's the author's purpose in making 
the Ark of the Covenant, the focal point of this narrative. And I think it's God's purpose in having the Ark carried 2,000 cubits or 1,000 yards in front of Israel so that Israel would know and that we, the readers, would know that the act of redemption about to take place was the work of the Lord and no one else. Again, this is the pattern of redemption throughout Scripture. God saves sinners by the working of his sovereign power and grace alone. So God went before Israel, well ahead of Israel. And God stopped the waters of the Jordan and God held them back with his strong right hand. Second, I want you to notice the preparation of the people. And the way that Joshua words it, look at verse 5 again. Consecrate yourselves for or because tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. It seems that consecration is required in order for the people to grasp the significance of the events about to transpire the next day. In other words, the miracle itself is not sufficient to inspire saving faith. The previous generation of Israel, after all, had passed through the Red Sea, yet they died in unbelief in the wilderness. Likewise, many or most of those who witnessed the miracles of Christ did not believe on him for forgiveness of sins and everlasting life. It's because miracles are are merely signs, markers, pointing to a deeper truth. The crossing of the Jordan was a sign that by the Lord's power and by the Lord's grace alone, a sinner may enter into his blessing. But Israel would not be ready, prepared, able to grasp these truths. The miracle would not inspire faith if they did not prepare and consecrate themselves. Once again, I would say that Davis's comments on this verse are worth considering. He writes, God's people must be rightly prepared for God's show if they are going to appreciate it, if they're going to be fortified in faith. And although Yahweh may not now cut a path through rivers for his people every month or so, the principle remains. Do you prepare yourself for the practice of public worship? If we are not impressed with the grandeur of the living God in public worship, it is because we have not prepared ourselves to see him as such. Could it be that we even fail to detect the Lord's marvelous working in the routine affairs of our lives simply because we have not prepared ourselves to see or even to expect them? It's worth considering, isn't it? Do you consecrate yourselves to come here on Sunday morning? Do you prepare yourself every morning to behold the Lord's manifold mercies throughout the day? If you don't consecrate yourself, you won't notice them and you will think that they just happened. Just by cause and effect. They're not cause and effect. Every good and perfect gift comes down from above, from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. But you won't see that and you won't know it and you won't turn it around into praise and gratitude to God unless you're consecrated and prepared to see his hand of mercy working in your life. 
It's amazing how those who prepare their hearts in the morning through prayer and the word have their eyes open to see the manifold mercies of God throughout their day and then are prepared to rehearse and remember them at night. But those who are unprepared and unconsecrated may just blindly and blithely go about their day supposing that everything happened by chance, cause and effect, like those unbelieving biblical scholars who try to explain the the damming of the Jordan River by means of naturally occurring phenomenon like like an earthquake. They, They see, so to speak, the event, but they can't make sense of it. Because their hearts aren't consecrated and prepared. So if you want your eyes open to the manifold mercies of God in your day and in your life, your heart needs to be consecrated before the Lord. Look at verse 7. The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, here is how you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, Hittites, Hivites, Perizzites, Girgashites, Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing before you into the Jordan. Now, therefore, take 12 men from the tribe of Israel, from each tribe a man. And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. Now, again, a few notes call for comment. First, I want you to note the parallel between Moses and Joshua. Just as the Lord had given power to Moses to perform signs and wonders in order, uh, according to Exodus 4-5, that the people of Israel may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. So now, he's doing the same thing for Joshua. He's exalting Joshua in the eyes of the people so that they will follow him in the conquest to come. Second, to build upon what we said a moment ago about the need for Israel to consecrate themselves if they are to grasp the significance of the sign so as to strengthen their faith, Joshua now explicitly tells them the purpose of the forthcoming sign. Verse 10, here is how you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites. Do you see how the miracle of the stopping of the Jordan River and the crossing through on dry land is intended to inspire their faith and their trust that God will from that point on not fail to fulfill his covenant to them. The miracle is meant to inspire an ongoing faith. The point of the miracle is to show that God is among them, that he goes before them into battle, and that he will without fail be victorious. And then third, note the emphasis upon the fact that the Lord is Lord of all the earth. He says it twice, verses 11 and 13. This is critical to Israel's worldview. And it's crucial to our understanding of the justice of what's about to happen in the coming chapters. 
The Lord is not a regional deity. He is not merely the God of Israel. He is Lord of all the earth. He is Lord of Canaan. He is Lord of Egypt. He is Lord of all peoples. And that is what gives him the sovereign right to take the land of Canaan from the peoples of Canaan and to give it to the people of Israel. It's his land. It's not theirs. They are squatters, as it were, and he is driving them off of his land. In other words, the conquest of Canaan that we're going to study in the upcoming weeks is not a theft of land. It is a reclamation of land that belongs to God and for centuries had been polluted and defiled by peoples to whom it did not belong. Furthermore, the sooner that you adopt this biblical worldview, that the Lord is Lord of all the earth and that man has no rights nor existence apart from his sovereign rule, the sooner you will be able to come to grips with the morality and the justice of God commanding that entire peoples be devoted to destruction. This is not, this conquest of of Canaan is not the malicious, immoral act of a capricious God, as Christopher Hitchens and other atheist writers famously assert. Rather, it is an act of justice from the hand of a righteous God whose right and sole responsibility it is to judge all the peoples of the earth. Continuing on, verse 14. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan and the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water, and then parenthetically he says, now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest, the waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam the city that is beside Zarathon, and those flowing down from the sea of Arabah, the salt sea, were completely cut off. And the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. Don't let your familiarity with this story numb you to the astounding demonstration of God's omnipotent power that's going on here. Not only did the waters recede, the river backed up into a great heap, a wall of water 15 to 20 miles upriver at Adam near Zarathon. As soon as the priest's feet stepped into the water... But the entire nation of Israel passed through on dry, that is, not muddy, mucky ground. This is every bit as impressive as the parting of the Red Sea, which it is intended to parallel. It works like this. Just as God brought the first generation of Israel out of bondage in Egypt through the miraculous parting of the Red Sea. So now he is bringing the children of Israel into their inheritance through a likewise miraculous stopping of the Jordan River. 
You'll find as you read through scripture, if you read it carefully, that the Lord seems to love symmetry. And it's on display here as well. Well, with the opening of Joshua chapter 4, the emphasis seems to shift from the accomplishment of redemption to its remembrance. Verse 1. When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, take 12 men from the people, from each tribe a man, and command them, saying, take 12 stones from here, out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you, and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the 12 men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed, a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. Note that these stones of remembrance were the Lord's idea, not Joshua's, not any other man's. The Lord wants his people to remember his great acts of redemption, as well as his more mundane mercies. Neither were they small stones, evidently, for the 12 men were each able to hoist a stone onto their shoulder and carry it out of the river over to Gilgal. So when you think of these stones, don't think of those little piles of rocks that you'll find at the, at the peak of mountains, but rather these are like pillars, like the pillars set up by Moses at the foot of Sinai at the forging of the covenant between God and Israel, more stones of remembrance in Israel's history. Evidently, then, God approves of physical mementos of his mercy. That's why he ordained a physical act like baptism and a physical meal like the Lord's Supper. They are mementos of God's great acts of mercy. Verses 8 8 through 10. And the people of Israel did just as Joshua commanded and took up 12 stones out of the midst of the Jordan, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, just as the Lord told Joshua. And they carried them over with them to the place where they lodged and laid them down there. And Joshua set up 12 stones in the midst of the Jordan, the place where the feet of the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant had stood, and they are there to this day. For the priests bearing the ark stood in the midst of the Jordan until everything was finished that the Lord commanded Joshua to tell the people according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua. And the people passed over in haste. Now verse 9 may cause you some consternation if you're, if you're reading and trying to picture what's going on here. Are the 12 stones in the middle of the Jordan there to this day or are they set up at Gilgal where Israel camped? I mean, did Joshua set them up at the feet of the priests while they were standing in the Jordan and then have them move to the shore at Gilgal? Or are there two sets of stone monuments? Well, there's, there's no real easy solution to the problem. But I think the simplest solution is that we're talking about two sets of stone monuments. One that remains in the center of the Jordan. And when the Jordan was not at flood stage, they could still be seen in the day in which the book of Joshua was written. And another set that were set up at Gilgal. 
Those set, that set of stones were gathered by the 12 representatives of Israel and carried to their encampment and set up by Joshua there as a second monument of his mercy. So the first monument would have reminded Israel of God's power in halting the river's flow. And the second would have reminded them of God's protection in bringing his people safely through the river. Verse 11. And when all the people had finished passing over, the ark of the Lord and the priests passed over before the people. The sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh passed over armed before the people of Israel. As Moses had told them, about 40,000 ready for war passed over before the Lord for battle to the plains of Jericho. On that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they stood in awe of him just as he stood, or just as they had stood in awe of Moses all the days of his life. Now you'll remember back from chapter one that the tribes of Reuben and Gad and the half tribe of Manasseh had requested of Moses that they be granted land on the eastern side of the Jordan as their inheritance upon the condition that they would pass over before their brothers and go to war with them for the promised land. So this marks the fulfillment of that earlier commitment. Verse 15. And the Lord said to Joshua, command the priests bearing the ark of the testimony to come up out of the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priests, come up out of the Jordan. And when the priests bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord came up from the midst of the Jordan and the soles of the priests feet were lifted up on dry ground, the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all its banks as before. Thus the Lord brought his people into the promised land by means of his omnipotent, sovereign power alone. The same way he brings his people into their everlasting inheritance today. He does it all. He holds back the waters of judgment with his strong right hand so that the church passes through safely on dry land. Verse 19. The people came up out of the Jordan on the 10th day of the first month, and they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those 12 stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know. Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, when he, which he dried up for us until we had passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, and that you may fear the Lord your God forever. So I want to spend the last 10 minutes this morning focusing upon those final verses of chapter 4. I want you to remember the theme of this message. The greatest enemy of faith is forgetfulness. And I want to make three brief comments and then some applications as we go forth from here. Number one, note the content of remembrance in verses 23 to 24. The Lord performed these 
two great miracles, the parting of the Red Sea and the parting of the Jordan for two purposes. Number one, in order that all the peoples, not just Israel, all the peoples may know the omnipotent power of Israel's God. And number two, that Israel, that the Lord's people may fear and reverence the Lord their God forever. In other words, miracles have a twofold effect, as does the remembrance of those miracles. On the one hand, they are a sign to unbelievers of God's supremacy, which results either in God drawing them to himself in repentance and faith, which is what happened with Rahab. Remember, she had heard of God's parting of the Red Sea and of his destruction of the Amorite kings, and it led her to repentance and faith in God. For others, however, this sign of God's supremacy drives them away in fear and further into their obstinate rebellion, as evidently it did for the rest of Jericho. So it's a sign to unbelievers. On the other hand, it's a sign to believers of God's redemptive purpose and power, that their children may trust and reverence the Lord forever. And the stones of remembrance served as a visible sign of the Lord's power throughout their generations. So how are we to apply this? It makes me think of the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is our pillar of remembrance, our stones of remembrance, which Paul says is the partaking or through the partaking of which we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. For believer and unbeliever alike, When the believers partake of the Lord's Supper, when unbelievers observe us partaking of the Lord's Supper, we are rehearsing God's great act of redemption in Christ. Every time we take of the bread and of the cup, the Lord's Supper is the church's stone of remembrance. Second, I want you to note the need for remembrance. The implication of this text is that miracles are rare which is why they have to be rehearsed and remembered from generation to generation. Our faith ought to be rooted in the great acts of redemption that God has worked for us in Christ. But Christ is not going to the cross again. He's not rising from the dead again. He doesn't appear to each and every generation anew. So our faith must not be rooted in the sight of these miracles, but in the remembrance of these miracles. Furthermore, our faith must not be rooted in miraculous workings of God at any rate, or else we'll be discouraged and disappointed because miracles are not God's ordinary way of working his will. When you stand before a proverbial Jordan River, ordinarily God does not part the waters for you. Let me read once more from Davis. He says, if Yahweh so insists that Israel remember this day, it implies that this event was unique and that Yahweh does not usually work with such visibly raw power. If Yahweh did something of this magnitude every fifth Wednesday or so, why should Israel need to remember Jordan Day? Apparently, this sort of miracle will be infrequent. Yahweh's standard method of retaining his people's fidelity or faithfulness is not by frequent and dazzling displays of power, but by faithful witness and teaching of those particular acts in which he has already demonstrated his care for his own. That's why when we gather on Sunday mornings, 
We don't gather to observe new miracles. If they happen in our midst, great. But that's not why we gather. We gather to rehearse and remember God's once for all great, miraculous, redeeming work in the death and resurrection of Christ. That's the ordinary way that God nourishes and sustains the faith of his people. So what you should take away from this is that you cannot turn this event into a promise that God will part your Jordan every time you find yourself in the floods of some tribulation. That's not ordinarily the way that he works by saving you from tribulation. He has parted the Red Sea and the Jordan once for all in the death and resurrection of Christ. And it is the remembrance of these ultimate acts of redemption combined with the continual ministry of the Holy Spirit that carries you through the floods of tribulation with the assurance that they will not overwhelm you so as to drown you. Isaiah 43, 1. But now, thus says the Lord who has created you, O Jacob, who has formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Note this. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, You shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. God's ordinary plan for his people is that you walk through floods and fires. You're going to endure tribulations and sufferings. That's how God refines and grows the faith of his people. What you have the promise is, your promise is rooted in the once for all act of Christ, where Christ sealed the covenant with his blood. You look back on that and you can be assured he will not let this flood overtake me. He will not let this fire consume me. He will take me through this suffering, through this tribulation. How do I know? Because he will not allow Christ's death and resurrection to be in vain. That's the way the rehearsal and the remembrance of his great once-for-all act of mercy in Christ sustains us through his mundane mercies in the midst of trials and tribulations throughout our life. Because God parted the Red Sea once for all in the death of Christ in order to save you from the bondage of sin and the onslaught of his wrath and judgment. And because he parted the Jordan River once for all in the resurrection of Christ in order to ensure that you would enter the promised land without drowning in the torrent of death and so become an heir of eternal life. You may be assured that he will not leave you to drown in the floods of trial or be consumed by the fires of tribulation. God does not ordinarily spare you from these things, but preserves you through these things. And he gives you the promise that every flood and every fire will work together for your ultimate salvation. Third, note the means of remembrance. God ordained a visible physical sign of his redemption. These stones of remembrance And these stones were intended to provoke questions. I love this. Questions from kids. You take your kids down to to Gilgal and they see these stones and they're like, hey, what are those stones? And it gives you an opportunity to rehearse and remember the Lord's mercy from generation to generation to tell your children of the great things that God has done for them. 
Now, as I've mentioned a number of times this morning, we have our own stones of remembrance in the bread and in the cup, which remind us of Christ's work of redemption and help us to proclaim those mercies to our children and so to propagate the faith from generation to generation. Remember, the greatest enemy of faith is forgetfulness. So how do we rehearse and remember the great things that God has done for us in Christ? Let me give you two ways. Number one, don't neglect the Lord's Supper. Don't neglect the Lord's Supper. And don't fail to prepare yourself for it through consecration. That is, through confession and prayer. In order that you can derive month by month when we approach the Lord's table, you can derive the benefit that God intends for you through this visible rehearsal of Christ's death. And parents, don't neglect this God-ordained opportunity to teach your children the faith. That's what the Lord's Supper is for. It's okay to talk during the supper. What do these elements mean? Hey, what's that bread about? Why do you have that cup? Can I have some? Why not? How many times have you had those conversations with your kids? And instead of just going, shh, tell them. This bread represents the body of Christ. This blood represents the cup of Christ. And no, you can't have this just yet because you haven't come to trust in Christ. But you can. And you will. Rehearse these truths often each time that we partake of the supper. Secondly, I think this text should lead us to rehearse and remember not only God's great once for all acts of redemption in the cross and the resurrection of Christ, but his everyday mercies which he bestows upon us day in and day out. I just encourage you, church, open your eyes to the daily providences of God, which he showers upon you. The providences by which he preserves you from danger, protects you, prospers you. And rehearse those often. Remember, you're going to miss them if you don't consecrate your heart. So start your day in the word, start your day in prayer, ask the Lord, open my eyes to see your hand of providence, your hand of mercy working in all of these ways, record your prayer requests so that you can record when they're answered and then come back together as a family at the end of the day or individually by on your own before the Lord and rehearse and remember and, and repeat the Lord's works of mercy among you. Open your eyes to the daily providences of God and rehearse them often at the dinner table with your kids in connect groups with your brothers and sisters and at Thanksgiving feast with your family. The greatest enemy of faith is forgetfulness. So first Baptist Nixa, discipline yourself to rehearse and remember all that God has done and all that he is doing for you in Christ. Christ.